hope you enjoy this message from South City C3, a location of C3 Church, Christchurch. Well, it's great to be with you tonight. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for being with us uh, here. And I know some have come especially because of what we're talking about. Others of you are here because you're part of our normal community. Wherever you're here, we welcome you tonight and we hope that you will have a, a really good evening. Tonight we're going to discuss the upcoming referendums that we will vote for very soon. I am going to talk about the end-of-life choice bill, and Warren is going to come and discuss the proposed cannabis legislation reform. Then there's going to be a time for question and answers. You'll see behind me that there's a mobile number, 021-1504262, during the evening. If you have a question that you want to throw our way, Um, We're we're a bit scared of the questions, but actually, throw us some curly ones, it's great. Um, Do that, and Jessie is going to write them all down, and she is going to ask some of them. We probably won't get through all of them, but some of them to us. As an introduction, here at our City 6pm service, we see ourselves as a community of disciples reaching the world. Part of this is being those who engage with the significant issues we're facing as a country. And I think that Christians need to be experts at disagreeing well with others. Being able to disagree well. And this is true of the issues we're going to discuss tonight, but it's true of so many different topics that we have, so many different issues that we might discuss If you've been on social media, you might have seen that it exploded. It pretty much blew up with the Level 2 and Level 3 announcement uh, this week. And it caused a lot of people to write some unpopular things and for them to get some negative feedback. My friend Graham posted this. Uh, He said, an unpopular opinion, someone else's in 2020. It's true, isn't it, that sometimes those who write unpopular opinions, uh, someone else's, uh, that becomes very unpopular. Phil Parks, for example, was offended by the suggestion that that statement (laughs) had given. Uh, I thought it was funny. Uh, we, We need to get good at responding to others' opinions and making sure our own statements are well considered. We hope to model that a little bit tonight. I think it takes a mature person to disagree with another person's point of view and still treat them with love and respect. And that's what we're going to try and do tonight. We hope you feel that love and respect this evening and treat others the same way. How do we have these conversations? It takes two things, only two, understanding and grace. Firstly, understanding. If you care about these topics, and I'm doing the end-of-life choice bill, if you care about this topic, then I highly recommend that you read the law. It's a lot shorter and less complicated than the cannabis legislation, and there are actually copies of both at the back for you to have a look at afterwards. A short analogy to help express why it's essential to read the law is that I like Big Macs. When I was younger, I watched the advertising, and it told me that my Big Mac was made out of natural New Zealand-made ingredients. It had lettuce, and the image made it look so good. I wanted one. Then there became a big uproar about McDonald's, and I heard it definitely wasn't healthy, and they would show me a picture of a limp and gross-looking burger, and I didn't want one. So is a Big Mac good or bad? Well, there's a really simple way to find out. I can see for myself what's in it. It's the taste and see approach, although we don't recommend necessarily tasting and seeing with either of these issues tonight. But what I can do is I can get a Big Mac and I can pull it apart and look in the ingredients to see whether it is good or not good. And that's what reading the Lord does for us. In regards to this law, reading uh, websites and pamphlets aren't enough. You'll only find a caricature of the law. It's not the law itself. People have their own slant and their own way of seeing it. Read it for yourself. And then make a judgment. And speak from a place of understanding. And the second thing you need is grace. Understand that people often speak out of emotion more than reason. 
And this is really important because if you go to a conversation with someone and you challenge a person's logical assumptions when their assumptions aren't based on logic, they're based on feelings, fear or anxiety, then you're going to have a really frustrating conversation. You need to understand that, and you need to have grace for that. Take the time to listen to their heart and begin to speak to those issues. Look for ways to have conversations with understanding and with grace. So let's keep that in mind as we explore the first referendum. Uh, we'll try and keep these to about 15 minutes each, which means that we can't explore any, everything, but do ask us some questions. So when you go to vote this year, uh, September the 19th, you will have, as well as all of your choices about political parties, two choices in front of you, and you will need to select one. You will either need to say, yes, I support the End of Life Choice Act 2017 coming into force, or no, I do not support the End of Life Choice Act 2017 coming into force. And it is a binding referendum. Whatever we choose on this issue will go into law. This evening, I want to outline to you why Christians might vote yes or no on this issue, because I've had conversations with Christians who will vote both ways. I'm not going to tell you how to vote. I'm not even going to tell you how I will vote. If you really want to know, you can ask me afterwards. Right, Christians who vote yes. The main reason Christians will vote yes is because of the value of compassion. God cares and is compassionate for those who suffer. He desires that we show that mercy and that care. Think of the story of the sheep and the goats. When I was sick, you cared for me. Or consider these words from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. So euthanasia comes from the Greek word euthanatos. It means good death. And why would we deny that for people who are suffering? The truth is that 2 to 5% of people die with unbearable pain. And they want to prevent that pain and allow the people who so choose and are eligible under this bill to end their lives in peace and dignity, surrounded by Fano and other loved ones. Those who vote yes say that our current end-of-life care does not provide relief in all cases and is drastically underfunded. Proponents believe we need it. And secondly, that we can control it. When this bill was first introduced uh, a few years back, a couple of years back, it was quite an open bill. It had a lot of areas open to uh, abuse. But through the process of amendments, many of the weak areas in this law have actually been tightened. And I think this is in part due to how vocal Christians were in their criticism of the bill. There were 25,000 submissions to the Select Committee, committee and there were some great arguments that tightened this law. So let's talk about the law and what it does and it doesn't allow. The law allows New Zealand citizens or permanent residents over 18 who are suffering from a terminal illness where death is imminent within six months to receive medication that will end his or her life. This can either be self-administered or administered by a health practitioner. This law allows doctors to not participate. Doctors are given the right under the law to conscientiously object. The hospices would have liked to have included organisations, not just doctors, in this, and there's even been a court case over that. The law allows the patient to pull out at any time. The patient can pull out at any time, even by a gesture, right up until the delivery of the life-ending medication. This law also has some restrictions. This law restricts anyone who is not terminally ill. The eligible person must be in an advanced stage of irreversible decline and be experiencing intolerable suffering. 
Now, two years ago, the law uh, not only allowed euthanasia for that reason, but also for those who have what it termed a grievous medical condition, not just a terminal one. That was open to all kinds of abuse, and actually, it's been removed from the law. Another addition to the law states that people are not eligible for assisted dying solely because they're suffering from a mental disorder or mental illness, or they're not eligible because they have a disability of any kind or because they are of an advanced age. The law also restricts anyone who is incapable of making a reasoned decision. They must have the capability to understand the nature of assisted dying and the consequences for them of dying. The law restricts coercion. There can be no coercion. And if it is felt the pressure is being put on the person, then no further action will be taken. It's explicitly stated in the law. The law also restricts one doctor decisions. There must be a second opinion by an independent health practitioner and a third opinion from a psychiatrist if it is deemed necessary. And these safeguards will prevent unwilling deaths. That is why some will say, Some Christians will say, for the small minority of people to whom this applies, the most merciful thing to do is to vote yes and give them that option. So that's Christians who vote yes. What about Christians who vote no? Christians who vote no agree that compassion is important, and they look to our palliative care system. Palliative care is an approach that improves the quality of life and the relief of suffering for those facing terminal illness. A few years ago, a member of our congregation died of cancer, and I had the honor of pastoring her and her whanau through that time. Her palliative care was very good. They were able to relieve a lot of her pain, and eventually at her request and discussion with her family, they gave her enough medication to induce her into a coma. They made it really clear that doing this didn't mean that she would live any longer, but it didn't make her die any quicker. It was done with great compassion and care for her. She died a week later in the presence of her family. There was beauty and humor even in the darkest moments. It was a sacred time for that family. Christians who vote no point out that people already have the right to refuse unwanted or heroic measures that merely prolong the dying process. You can already refuse care that won't keep you alive. There are times when you need to let sickness take its natural course, and that's a good thing. The key reason, though, that some Christians vote no is because of their understanding of the sanctity of life. God has given us life, and we submit to him as the one who can take it away. Christians say God is in charge of their lives. We let him be our master. And one area that he can be our master is over our life and death. Consider Job 14, verse 5. You have decided, says Job, the length of our lives. You know how many months we will live, and we're not given a minute longer. God, says Job, is the master of all parts of our life. He might know, uh, Job might know only trouble, and he might want his suffering to end, yet he submits it to God as the giver of life. It's God's to give and to take. Our life has value intrinsically wired into it by God. Life is a sacred gift. We know from the Bible that God's the creator of all things. He is the source of all life. When God created the first uh, man, Adam, he was not alive until God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And it was at that moment that he became a living being. In the same way, all humans carry God's breath within them, which gives amazing value to every human life. So Christians who don't know say that to assist people in dying is to say that human life has no more value than that of an animal. And if that was the case, why would we cherish it? Those who vote no also point out that the main reason that people request a lethal dose is actually not pain. In fact, in Oregon, where this sort of thing has been legal for 20 years now, pain is a reason for requesting a lethal legal dose in only one of three people. Here's a chart behind me from Oregon, from their statistics that they release. These are the reasons that people have requested a legal dose in Oregon. And the top one is that they're less able to engage in activities that make life enjoyable. 
The second is that they lose autonomy, then they lose dignity, that they're a burden on their family, friends, and caregivers. Then there's the losing of control of bodily functions and inadequate pain control, and finally the financial implications of the treatment. Other countries have also shown that assisted dying always starts small but gets larger. I was talking to a medical practitioner who told me there is a difference between law and practice. Those who've committed to uh, assist others in dying will have less compulsion to say no. It can become a box-ticking exercise. In other places, other countries, the definition for assisted dying has included people who have depression. In 2014, of the 200 psychiatric, pa psychiatric patients who were euthanized in Belgium, the primary reason they sought uh, to end their life for 66% was cited as social isolation and loneliness. And Christians who vote no say that's not a good enough reason. So we don't want to get to that point. So here's where we land. We have these two values that seem to compete. Compassion and mercy and sanctity of life. I want to acknowledge tonight that this is complicated, right? It's not as simple as seeing it one way or the other. And we want you to know that we accept you whatever you choose. Whether you vote yes or no, I want to challenge you with something, though. This is a great conversation for us to have. We as Christians need to have a robust response for those who are suffering. James chapter 1, verse 27 says, Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. We need to make sure that we care for people at their moment of deepest need. We need to know their fears and meet them with love and compassion. We need to look after people at all stages of life. It's something God places on each one of us. We need to ensure palliative care, which if it is dramatically underfunded, is a real problem in New Zealand. We need to make sure that that stays at a really high level regardless of whether this goes through or it doesn't go through. You need to shout just as loud about God's compassion for those who are suffering as you do for the moral standards that you feel he upholds in the word. That's the choice that's before us. A lot for us to think about. So that's me. And that's kind of a bit of a low, I know. We're talking about end of life. So we're going to take it from a low to a high. <laughs> Warren's going to come and share about cannabis. Well, let's just be clear. I'm not high in um, deliveries. Good evening. You good? Good, good. So uh, I have three children. Um, they are currently 20, 18, and 15. And uh, to my knowledge, at the moment, they don't use drugs. Well, hey, you know, we don't know what our kids get up to sometimes. However, if they did and they got caught, would I want them to have a criminal conviction? Now, that, in essence, is the essential nature of why this legislation is going to be before, before Parliament. Now, a little bit different, this referendum is a little bit different uh, to the end-of-life choice bill in that it's not a binding referendum. In other words, uh, the government just want to hear public opinion on this, then they will go away and decide which way they'll vote on it. But uh, like Jonty, let's present why Christians would vote for it and why... Christians would vote against um, the legalising cannabis legislation. Those who would vote for it, you know, you're thinking, now why, why would you do that? Is basically, why would you criminalise a large proportion of the population who are doing a very low-level offence? They're not doing any harm to anyone. And you might be thinking, well, how many people we're talking about. Well, that's really hard to ascertain how many people use cannabis um, over the course of a year and how much they use it. But most surveys suggest that it's somewhere around about 400,000 New Zealanders use cannabis, mostly, 90 plus percent of them, in a recreational way. 
Okay? So the vast majority of those people who use are responsible in, well, in inverted commas, are responsible in their use of it. They realize that this is something that they're doing for them. They are not driving while they're high. They're not working in, a, in an area where they're responsible for the safety of others while they're high. So they're going, look, um, hey, me having a joint now and again, what's the big deal? Um, I won't tell you which house I was in, but there I had a neighbour. Uh, every Saturday morning I'd be out, you know, doing the lawns or something like that, and I'd go, oh, yep, there he goes again. <laughs> you know, he's just, he's just having a, sitting out on his deck, um, having a joint, and I could tell he, that, that was just part of his lifestyle. Um, and, and there are many people like that. So why criminalise people who aren't harming anyone else? And the other reason for this is if cannabis is legalised, then surely there would be more control around it. So that's the argument uh, for it. Uh, a little bit like um, alcohol many years ago uh, in New Zealand, we actually tried to ban alcohol altogether. It was such a social issue, such a social problem, um, that we tried to outlaw alcohol altogether. And then when they realised, well, that's going to be really hard to enforce, and it actually just drives the problem underground. Uh, therefore, let's put tight legislation around alcohol. So that's what we have in place now. You can't purchase it um, if you're under 18, and you can't drink, drive, and all that sort of thing. So now the same type of thinking applies to cannabis, right? There is, um, you have to buy it from licensed premises. Um, it can't be overtly advertised. Um, you can grow your own, but you can only grow two plants. You have to be over 20. So there's all these things that are in place to try and restrict and control the use of cannabis. Because when it's when there's uh, specific laws around this, like there is alcohol, it's a whole lot easier for the police to enforce it and go, okay, you know, how much have you got on you? Is it allowed? Um, are, you, um, are you selling it? Are you a licensed dealer? All that sort of thing. Now, some would argue this would take a lot of power away from the gangs and pull it out from being underground and all that sort of thing and control the price of it and all that sort of stuff. That's kind of a debatable one. That kind of goes both ways, uh, depending on um, how you look at that. But the, those who are advocating for this bill would say that uh, controlling it, this bill would allow uh, law enforcement agencies to control it a whole lot more, the, the supply of it, who's using it, how they're using it, and also put money into education and helping those who do become addicted. So... Where in the Bible can you find? Uh, now, it's interesting. I was just talking to Josh before, and uh, he was saying, you know, maybe we go back to Genesis. No, no, Josh wasn't advocating this, actually. It was someone else. But he was telling me about someone else who was saying, well, God's given us all plants to use, right? Yeah, okay. That's probably stretching it a little bit. Consider this. Uh, Matthew chapter 19. We'll go there. Now, here's an example of... Jesus explaining why God would allow a concessionary law. Now, you probably haven't um, heard that term before, but Christians who would vote for this bill would say, maybe there's a need for a concessionary law. So what is that? Well, here's an example of it. Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, what are they talking about here? What they're talking about is Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 and 2. So let's go to Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 and 2, and see what it says. It says this. Suppose a man marries a woman, but she does not please him. Now, just bear in mind, this is written under a very different age and time, okay? <laughs> Having discovered something wrong with her, he writes a document of divorce, hands her over, and sends her away from his house. When she leaves this house, she is free to marry another man. Now, the Pharisees are referring to that law, and they're saying, see, if my wife displeases me and I want to marry again, I don't think this is working out too well, I can divorce, right? That's, that's what the law says, okay? 
Jesus, in response to this, Matthew, back to Matthew 19, verse 4, says this. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the Creator made the male and female. He said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then? They asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. Okay, so what Jesus was saying is, here's the ideal. The ideal is that we live in a society where everyone does everything right. They don't, they don't want to sin, they don't want to do the wrong thing. They want to look out for each other and care for each other and all that sort of thing. That, that's the ideal. In this situation, the ideal is that people get married and they stay married for life. That's kind of how it works, and there is no divorce. But God also accepts that we're human, and we're going to make mistakes. We're going to change our minds. We're going to, you know, there's going, divorce is going to happen. So then what God does is go, okay, that's my ideal, and I want you to follow my ideal. But if you're going to do this, if you're not going to follow my ideal, here's a concessionary law. In other words, a law that I'm going to put in place to protect those who are involved in it. Does that make sense? So, this is a similar, uh, there's a similar understanding to this. It's basically going, okay, we accept that there are enough people in our society that will use cannabis. We can't stop that. It's, it's just a fact of life. Therefore, okay, if they're going to use cannabis, let's put some tight concessionary laws around that to restrict the use of it. That just makes sense. Let's not criminalize them. Let's, let's put things in place that will work uh, for the good of society, that keep society safe, that keep them safe as much as possible. So when we do this, when those laws are in place, we know pretty much who is using cannabis, how much they're using, how much help they'll need, all that sort of thing. So those who advocate for this law say, hey, everything is kind of tightened up and uh, there are laws put in place as to what will and won't happen. And you can go through the legislation. The legislation is quite involved, and it's still being drafted. You'll see there's still some areas that need some work in it. So those, those Christians that would vote for it would say, okay, um, let's, let's put this legislation in place so that we can actually help people who do get addicted and control those who are using. Okay, why would we vote against it? Have a look at this scripture in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 10, those two chapters in Corinthians, Paul is addressing an issue where some Christians feel that, hey, you can't eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And the other Christians are going, hey, well, we can eat whatever we like. You know, you know Jesus is Lord and we, we don't obey these idols, just eating the meat doesn't matter. So there was this major conflict over this, basically a conscience issue. And Paul's basically saying, okay, your conscience may allow you to do it, but restrict your freedom for the sake of your brother that you don't weaken his conscience. So be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Okay. So, as Christians, we would accept restrictions of our public freedoms for the good of some in our society. Does that make sense? We go, um, like, let's take, this is, doesn't, the analogy doesn't quite fit, but you'll kind of get where I'm going. Let's say I have an amazing supercar. Oh, oh how I wish. Um, and, and, and let's say we... Um, had laws in New Zealand where we could, we could drive really fast on motorways, you know, maybe like Germany, like with the autobahn. And, and you go, oh, okay, I can drive really fast. And maybe I'm safe driving my supercar really fast. But would that be a bad example to, you know, the, the bogan who's got this, you know, pimped up Skyline or, you know, WRX or whatever, but he's going to be irresponsible with it. So I'll allow 
a restriction on the speed limit to control me, even though I would be responsible, because I know that other people wouldn't be responsible. Does that kind of make sense? So basically, Christians who are opposed to this are going, why open the door? Why open the door and allow um, drug use to be prevalent in our society when it doesn't do anyone any good? It's not a healthy thing to have in our society. We're already, as a society, trying to rid it of um, nicotine, of, of smoking, and the addictiveness of, uh, and the health effects of smoking. So why would we introduce um, cannabis or marijuana to, to the situation? And that's a valid argument as well. And so we accept that there is a restriction on our freedoms for the sake of this. Now, like John T., did before, it's worthwhile looking at other places that have introduced um, a more liberal uh, laws around cannabis and see what happened there. And one of the, the best examples, because it's been in place for quite some time, is Colorado. Uh, and so you can go online and do some searches on what's happened there. Um, definitely, um, you know, the the sale and purchase of cannabis is a lot more visible than it used to be in Colorado. Actually, a whole lot of people come um, from other states into Colorado to buy cannabis from there. Um, has it increased usage amongst teen, teenagers? This is a big concern. See, because with cannabis, um, for those in, you know, that are old like me and... Um, and, and use a bit of cannabis. It doesn't really deteriorate our brains that much because you know they're already on the way out, so, so we're okay. But if you are under 25, your brain is still developing, okay? All those synapses are still kind of forming and, and, and your brain is still growing and developing. It's still in that formative stage, particularly in your teenage years, but even right through to when you're 25. Now, if you use drugs, if you use cannabis, before the age of 25, you are doing damage to your brain. You will suffer the effects later in life of that early use of drugs. Uh, now, it's interesting that they've made, um, they interviewed Andrew Little um, and others, MPs, on this a while ago, and it's actually on YouTube if you want to look at it, um, and they said, well, if that be the case, if this is the science behind it, then why didn't you make age 25 rather than 20, and they went, oh, it's just, that's just unmanageable. You know, in other words, they were just accepting that, you know, how are we going to stop 23, 24-year-olds from, from using cannabis? So there is kind of this acceptance that, hey, we, we even know this will be bad for some of our young people, but we concede that, hey, they're going to do it anyway, so at least this is some restriction, making it at the age of 20. Um, but the interesting thing about the Colorado experiment is that even though there are some negatives, like there are more traffic offences relating to drugs, there are more hospitalisations. However, the long-term um, graphs kind of show that, that, that people tend to try it out and use it um, a little bit more. It does spike after the legislation comes in, so we would expect that if this legislation comes in that more people use and they use more of, the, of it, uh, maybe more often. But in time, they found after a couple of years when they did the same survey, they were pre-legislation levels. Quite interesting that people kind of try it for a while and then go, nah, you know, it's not really for me. And so it's just those who would use anyway tend to be uh, users. And same thing for the amount of addicted people that became strongly addicted to drugs. Uh, seems to be a pretty similar statistic because the argument here is if you open the door for cannabis, does that lead to harder drugs uh, later on? Well, it can do, but it tends to be a small percentage of the population who are likely to get addicted anyway. So where do we land on all of this? There is the argument both ways on this particular discussion. If you want to know a whole lot more, there are a couple of good websites. Um, the Drug Foundation of New Zealand is very much for and has got some all, a list of all the arguments of for why on their way, website. Say no, uh, say nope to Dope um, is the website that probably has outlined some of the best arguments against. 
Uh, and all of this, uh, again, as uh, John T. reinforced before, let us be open to what each other has to say. Let's not become entrenched in our personal opinion. I have a personal opinion. I'm not going to, again, like John T., I'm not going to tell you how to vote. Uh, if you ask me afterwards, I'll I'll give you where I'm at right right today. Um, but I'm still researching this because, uh, like John T. said before, you've got to do the research. You've got to have understanding around this. One of the big things for me, though, is Christians can often be known for what we're against. We can be sort of, you know, standing up and going, oh, this is bad, this is bad, and we're really advocating for some. And then when we're challenged, we don't actually know, well, why is it really that bad? So know the reasons why you hold the opinion that you have, but also know what you're for. And um, one of the things that Christians are for is a healthy society where we relate well to each other and we keep each other safe and well and we look out for each other. Now, does this legislation do that? Yes, it does somewhat. Are there dangers in it that it could lead to an unhealthy society? Yes, as well. So, so I know that makes it harder for you, but I think that's the mindset. That's kind of the frame of reference we've got to look as Christians through it, is to go look at our society and go, how do we promote as Christians um, a well society, a healthy society, where people look out for each other and treat each other well, and that there is there are safe parameters in our society. Because I want that, you want that. Uh, I don't want to drive down, drive home tonight, and you know a drunk driver is coming the other way, or a driver that's high coming the other way and takes me out. I don't want that. No one wants that in New Zealand. Um, but what's the best legislation that's going to achieve that sort of safe and well, that sort of safety and well-being in our society? Okay. So that's my bit. So I'll ask Jesse to come back up. I hope you've been texting through your questions, and Jonty can come back up as well, and you can fire in your questions, and we'll go from there. See where we go. Do this in the TV shows where the things come in live and they've got to respond. <laughs> lots of questions, lots to think about. Um, I suppose where do we want to stand? I suppose this is a conversation here. Yeah. We'll go on opposing sides. <laughs> opposing. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like... Well, we've got a few, many for both um, topics that we've talked about tonight. So I suppose we'll start with this first one that's quite general, but it does lean towards the uh, cannabis question, which is, that, so our first one is, New Zealand Drug Foundation educates, advises, and stands up for healthy approaches to alcohol and other drugs. Their view is that, clear, uh, that cannabis control measures in place as detailed in the bill will help us make New Zealand a much healthier and safer place to live in. Shouldn't we listen to the experts? Yeah, that, that, that's, a fair, that's a very fair comment. Um, yes, and that the, <laughs> the, the premise behind why the Drug Foundation is backing this is um, they have tried to help uh, especially young people um, who are addicted to cannabis or other drugs and uh, rehabilitate them and give them the help that they need. But a lot, a lot of young people, because they know it's illegal, uh, are afraid to come forward and go, yeah, I've actually got a problem. Because then they go, well, if I do that, will I get a conviction? And I don't want a conviction. So they, they kind of hide and in their... Uh, in their addiction, and they, and they keep it all underground, whereas the Drug Foundation would say, hey, well, this brings it all out in the open. Um, but I think, I think that where the Drug Foundation is coming from is, is looking at that minority and going, how do we help that minority, rather than what is really what is best for the whole society? I, I wonder about that as, as to where their approach is coming from. Yes, they're experts, but they're experts because they're seeing things, they, they're focused on the problem. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. Thanks, Warren. Um, cannabis can, this is a big one, so it, it has been proven that cannabis can induce schizophrenia yeah. in people with a genetic predisposition, yeah. and approximately one in 200 in the population, this is four, does voting to decriminalise 
uh, this make me indirectly responsible or is it their responsibility to identify their genetic predisposition? Yeah, really, really good comment. Um, it basically, uh, cannabis doesn't necessarily produce these conditions, so let's just be clear on that. Uh, what you would have is a predisposition to depression or schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or, or some of those mental health conditions. Um, however, what it will do is exaggerate whatever's there. Does that make sense? So uh, if you are predisposed to it, it will make it worse. Um, so that's true. And the problem is as soon as um, is you don't know that you may not know you've got that condition or it may not... Uh, express itself as strongly as you would have been aware of until you start using and then you start using and then you like it and you start getting addicted and you're in a downward spiral. So uh, that is a very valid point that people bring out. However, uh, those who are voting for the legalisation of cannabis would say, yeah, but, but we're actually trying to restrict it in society. That person could have got access to those drugs like, yeah, anyway, like, you know, if you really want access to the drugs, you're going to find them. Whereas at least if it's legalised and we've got some tight restrictions and things like that around it, we can get help for that person as quickly as possible. So it kind of goes a little bit both ways on that one. Yeah. Another one. Are you ready okay. for it? Yeah. Okay. Cannabis. You've got to give John D. Yeah, some, right? I know. Well, <laughs> yeah, we can swing this no, way no, if you it's like. Good. No, no, okay. you can do Oh, okay. You could be able to comment on this if you want, Jonty. Uh, if cannabis is legalised, is it okay for Christians to partake in it since it's not breaking the law? <laughs> okay. Well, hey, at the end of the day, uh, I don't know about you, but we probably break the law anyway. Has anyone ever gone up faster than 50? In the, you know, do you, do you, so here's, here's the thing on this. Uh, no, 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 of course not. No, we're, no, we're. <laughs> oh, no, you're all so, so innocent. Okay, here's, here's the thing, is that, because people have said to me, well, what's the worst case scenario if this law goes through? The, the cannabis legalisation law, I don't think is in quite the same category as the end-of-life choice bill, in that um, I don't think, mm, it's just my opinion, okay? I'm not sure about this. But I don't think it's going to change things in society really significantly. I don't think it's a, uh, it, it, if it did go through, I probably wouldn't go, oh, and um, you know, go out marching and campaigning uh, to oppose it. I'll go, okay, well, that's, that's kind of where, where New Zealand has voted on. Um, because it's, it's like other addictive substances like caffeine. Or, or alcohol, or nicotine, or other, other things like that. We, we already have uh, a legalised drug use in our society already, if you look at it that way. Okay, you might say, well, this is worse than that. Um, yeah, so is it, is it okay for Christians to use drugs? Well, then you've got to look at other scriptures like looking after the temple of the Holy Spirit. But then... Is, is smoking wrong, is drinking wrong, you know, there's, you'd, you'd have to bring all of those things into the discussion. You couldn't isolate cannabis out on its own. You'd have to bring it in with other things. I'll chip in. Yeah, uh, yeah the question was, if the law says it's okay, does that it mean it's okay for Christians? And I think what you're talking about with the concessionary laws, divorce was lawful, but... God at the same time said, I hate divorce because of the effects that it has upon the people who are, who are involved in it and those who are indirectly affected by it. So just because the law says it's okay doesn't suddenly mean it's okay in God's eyes. I think that's important for us to recognise too. end of life question, here we go. Should the church be more proactive in assisting with the dying process and offering sacred spaces for holistic palliative care instead of relying on the healthcare system? Mm. Really good question. Yeah. Should the church be more, I'm going to get you to repeat it yep. so that I can think. Um, be more proactive in assisting with the dying process and offering sacred spaces for holistic palliative care instead of relying on the healthcare system. Yeah, really good question. Yeah. Um, I think that whatever way the church can get involved would be great. Uh, I know that actually the Catholic Church has been amazing at this, 
Um, there are places around Lake Nazareth House here in Christchurch, which are, are largely run uh, not by national healthcare systems, they get funding, but they are uh, run by uh, Catholic. Um, there, are, there are nuns and there are others who are involved with that particular organisation. So the church has actually and is actually involved in providing some of that care. But I think it would be great if that would increase. Can I just jump in on that one? Um, I think there is a growing awareness in our healthcare system for a more, a more holistic approach to health. And um, the, the interesting thing is a huge majority of New Zealanders are okay with um, chaplains and priests and people like that being involved in end-of-life care. Um, yet there's still some resistance from the health community because they take quite a science uh, based approach. So, yeah, I would be very much in favour of um, Christians being involved in, uh, yeah, hospice care, end of life care. However, would they, would we go as far to create a sacred space around that? For me, um, if I had someone in my church, even if, let's say hypothetically, I didn't agree with their choice to end their life. However, if, that, if this legislation came into place, and if they made that choice, then I wouldn't withdraw from caring for them. Does that make sense? I'd be right by their bedside, um, assisting where I could and supporting in any way I could. And if they wanted me to pray and, and read scripture to them and uh, give words of encouragement, um, to them as they are ending their life, then I'd be right there uh, supporting them. But it would be their choice uh, in what they're doing. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so you're one person. Yeah. John T's one person. How yeah. do we then mobilise others to have that view so that we're all together doing that? Mm, if you're saying that that's question. how we could do it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think... We need to just keep raising the value of compassion and love within the Christian community. And that even though people may make choices that are different from us, we are supportive of the person. Um, even if we're not supportive of the choices that they make, once they've made that choice, we, we rally behind them and we, we do what we can. Um, how do we do that as a, as a wider community? Uh, we model it, we talk about it, we testify about it. Um, yeah, I, I think I think, that's I think you've just got to uh, look for opportunities as they come. I mean, Warren and I, in our role as pastors, we come across people pretty often who are uh, in that stage of life where they're dying. That's kind of a privileged position that we get to be a part of sometimes. And it's not like everybody here is going to be part of that. But you might you have a relative. You might know of somebody. And you can be someone who cares and supports them. And then also do some research into palliative care and how you can support that as well. Gosh, they're still coming in. Thanks for these questions. We can't, unfortunately, answer them all tonight. Uh, but we do have another one on euthanasia. How can the law ensure that those who choose to die through euthanasia haven't been coerced? Mm. Yeah, a law can't, uh, not fully. It uh, certainly has sections that try to cover that. They talk about the, uh, there being an awareness that this can be a thing where there is pressure put on someone. And so... It, what should happen under the law is that as soon as a medical practitioner who's involved in that assisted dying process becomes aware through a comment that this person makes or uh, through the process that there is some coercion going on or there is pressure being placed on that person, according to the law, at that moment, the medical practitioner should say, we're not doing this. This is off. This can't happen. Um, how you police that. There is a whole committee that is going to oversee the running of this law if it comes into practice. So there is a whole group of people who will review this and will ask these questions, hopefully, 
but as we've said, uh, those who will be part of this process are usually those who go, we actually don't see a problem with this. And maybe there is that, I suppose, that fear that they might be a bit more hesitant to say, okay, we're pulling the plug on this. Uh, yeah. Let's jump back to the schizophrenia mental health topic. Um, there was a question in there about depression and choosing to die. Can we have some clarity around that? If you have been diagnosed with depression, does that so uh, you can't make no, that decision? So, so no, if you've got depression, it doesn't mean that you can't choose to die, but you can't choose to die just because you have depression. You must have a terminal illness that will end your life within the next six months, or, or you've You've got to have a, someone who tells you that. That's always a guessing game anyway, but it's got to be the primary thing that happens. There has to be a terminal illness that will uh, bring suffering and is going to end your life in the next six months. It cannot happen just because of depression, mental illness, age or disability. But the law doesn't say just because you have depression that you can't uh, be... Uh, euthanized, you can't be part of the assisted dying. So if you have depression and a terminal illness, then you are eligible for assisted dying, but you're not eligible just because of depression in New Zealand under the current law as it stands. That's right. Um, the other question that often comes up in relation to this is uh, medicinal use of cannabis. That law is a completely separate law and is already in place in New Zealand. So that's a, it's a completely separate category. Um, the legalisation of cannabis bill, that the referendum that's in front of us, is for recreational use, not medicinal use. The medicinal use of cannabis is already in law and is already in place in New Zealand and regulated by um, health professionals. Do you think we should consider other people that are involved in palliative care, nurses, doctors, professionals that may be put in a corner or made to make a decision if this euthanasia bill goes through? They, uh, they won't be the ones who are making the decision about assisted dying. There will be medical practitioners who have uh, volunteered to actually be part of this process. That is what will happen under this law. Uh, the palliative care system, I mentioned this in brief in, in my talk, uh, they did have some concerns. And so Hospice New Zealand, I think it was, uh, that section sector actually went to the government and said, hey, please explain, under this legislation, what does this mean for us? Can we as a, an entire organisation throughout New Zealand conscientiously object? And the answer that they got back was very much that they could. They were allowed to say, we and our doctors, uh, that's not what we're here for. We're here to support people as they go through the dying process, not to assist them in it. And I think that came back. They still had concerns, but it came back pretty clearly through, I think it was through the High Court, to say that uh, they wouldn't have to be a part of that process. Really thought-provoking questions, everybody. Yeah. So I suppose we've got time for a few more. Yeah. Um, what about Chris? The command to be self-controlled. Where does that fit into everything that we are talking about tonight? It, absolutely. Yes. Uh, it's a very high value of scripture, and that is that as Christians, we need to be in control of ourselves and our bodies um, in every way. So uh, hence the scripture says don't get drunk. Um, doesn't say don't drink, but it says don't get drunk. Why? Because you're, you're not in full control of, of who you are. Now, that, the, the question is, at what point do you lose control? When, you know, how much cannabis use can you, can you do before you lose control? Uh, I don't know from a medical point of view where that where that line kind of sits, whether it's one joint or two. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the closest I got was um, I was trekking in Nepal, and um, I was so here's confession time. Um, I wasn't smoking, but I was in a very very small cabin, and everybody else was. <laughs> And um, I got a bit lightheaded, and, a, and, and but that was about it. And I thought, wow, no, this is no, I'm never going to go here. There's nothing pleasurable about this at all. Um, but uh, but I was very much still in control. So yes, um, 
the, the Christian value of being in control, that's true, and also to not be addicted to something. Um, the, the scripture and, and, and our relationship with Christ would dictate that we're not addicted to things of this world. If there's any addiction that we have, it's to him. Um, so, you know, we're not controlled by things that, nothing should be in control of us. Um, that includes a whole lot of things, just by the way. <laughs> not, not just cannabis. Yeah. Anyway, I'll leave that just hanging out there. <laughs> Euthanasia. Shouldn't our stance as Christians be that we shouldn't help others end their lives, i.e. end their chance of being saved? Mm. Or realising their salvation? Oh, yeah, I see where you're coming from here. Um, this this kind of relates to what John T. was saying about the sanctity of life. Um, and that is a really, it is a, a key issue in this, is um, is it right for me to determine when I end my life or for God to determine it? Uh, very much the scripture would indicate that God is sovereign and our life is in his hands. However, in saying that, um, it wouldn't be the unforgivable sin, in my opinion, okay? Um, yes, it's a, it could be a sin, um, but if you go down that track, if someone committed suicide, they lived a Christian, you know, they are Christians all their lives, and they committed suicide, you'd say, oh, well, they can't go to heaven then. Well, hang on a minute, really? Like, I think the, the, the grace of God is broader than that, and I think most, I'm kind of hoping that most of us would hold that opinion. Now, uh, but this question is more related, well, hang on, isn't it giving them the opportunity to, to hear the gospel um, and to respond to that? Well, I'd like to think that there was an opportunity before they got to that point to, to hear the gospel, I, I would have thought. Um, and maybe that kind of relates to the holistic care that should be around them. Sorry, do you want to speak? Yeah, no, a really interesting one. Um, I found it interesting that you brought suicide in. You, we took a question, we made it much more complicated. Okay, sorry, we did. Uh, no, but anyway, the uh, really interesting, I think, around um, opportunities for salvation. The interesting thing is that there are a number of people who have given less than six months to live who live for decades. Uh, and the interesting thing is, if some of them, I think there's even, Warren was telling me about a program recently, someone who's campaigning against this law, who was given less than six months, would have mm. gladly taken the law mm. and taken their own life uh, if they were given the opportunity, but ended up living for and still alive well mm. over a decade yeah, later, right, yeah. and now they are campaigning against it because, mm. well, there was so much more life that they would have missed out on mm. had they taken that as a way out. So that makes it, yeah, an interesting consideration. I feel like, John, you're big on health and safety. Yeah? <laughs> I may be one of the health and safety people. There we go. Here. So if you've got employees, you are required to take all possible steps uh, to make sure they're safe and they're not harmed. Should we not There are be... certain ladders around here that we don't <laughs> want our staff to climb up. <laughs> Should we not be extending that to our, the rest of society in dealing with euthanasia, cannabis, etc.? Okay, just run that past me again. Do you want me to so, read the question out? Yeah, read yeah. the question out, just so we get it right. Sounds em like an interesting one. Employers are required to take all practical steps to ensure no one is harmed at work. Should the same requirement not be applicable to society? So I suppose that could be for euthanasia or for Yeah, cannabis. and I think it comes back to the Hippocratic Oath of do no harm. That's what I hear coming through in that question. They're saying, isn't it, isn't it for the good of all society that we don't harm someone? And if we're going to assist them in dying, then we are going to bring them harm. Uh, and that is why many doctors have said that they will not be part of this process. They cannot because it goes against the very nature of what it means to be a healthcare uh, worker. So I certainly understand uh, that reasoning. Um, the reverse argument, of course, is that here is a person who likely is going to die, and so actually you're doing harm by allowing them to suffer more than they need to. Uh, related to that, um, we already have a whole lot of workplace safety laws in place separate from um, the cannabis leg legislation. Um, so, for example, even if uh, legalising cannabis comes in, um, you know, you're not going to see 
um, the guy who's going to fly the plane that you're just jumping on, smoking a joint as he's going up the gangway. It's not going to happen. Why? Because his workplace rules would not, his code of conduct, all that sort of thing, his employment agreement would not allow him to do that. Um, the Starks operate uh, fishing boats, you know, they, they have health and safety policies in place, I'm sure, that don't allow the captains and the skippers of their boat to uh, be over a certain drug limit and all that sort of thing. There's drug testing in place, all that sort of thing in workplaces for this very reason that our health and safety isn't put at risk by someone who is serving us in a workplace or professional capacity. Mm. I've asked you, see, for one more. <laughs> what do you think about the argument that if uh, cannabis was legalised, that it would reduce synthetic use? Yeah, well, I would hope so, because um, I, I think uh, the synthetic stuff is just an yeah, absolute minefield. Um, we've seen uh, through the media, especially like a year or two ago, the dramatic effects of you know bad um, drugs being put out there in the market, and this is one of the reasons for it, for the leg legislation, is that it can be monitored the the quality of product and what's being sold through licensed premises uh, can be regulated and can be controlled very tightly. So uh, you know laced products uh, and for example can't go out into the marketplace so that's one of the reasons one of the strong reasons for whereas the black market you know you're kind of doing a shady deal um, you know behind the shed you know um, you don't you don't know what's in that packet you don't know what you're getting um, you don't know how it was produced and where it was produced from thanks for listening to this week's message to learn more about our church, visit c3chch.org.